go for it. <laughs> Wonderful. Gotta get back to work. Yeah. Well, uh, what would you do if you didn't have a work to get back to? You know, we just sit around, get fat. Well, that's true. <laughs> uh, it always amuses me, actually, when we talk about, when people talk about the, you know, if only we had all these technologies and then, you know, humans could just do nothing and then we'd all be happy. I'm always just like, I don't think so. I think <laughs> we'd all be miserable. <laughs> I'm only happy when I'm working, to be honest. When I'm not working, I, I just want to get back working. It's like Apocalypse Now, Martin Sheen. When he's over in Vietnam, all he wants to do is get back home. When we got back home after a couple of weeks, all he wants to do is get back in the jungle. <laughs> great movie. Yeah, oh, great okay. movie. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, yeah, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I'm delighted to be joined uh, by Ivor Cummins, second time on the show. Uh, Ivor, welcome back to the show. Yeah, great to be here, Josh. Uh, what do you want to ask me today? Uh, yeah, so, um, like I mentioned before we started, I have been hearing a lot of conversations about heart disease, about cholesterol, and these debates are things, and, and yeah, the inf influence of, of processed uh, foods and refined sugars. And it's like something that I've been vaguely aware of for a couple of years. And I just, I've, I've been finding myself like confronted with a lot more people discussing it and therefore wanted to get some, yeah, chat to you since you've written the book, um, Eat Rich, Live Long with um, Jeffrey Gerber or Gerber, Gerber, Gerber. Um, and yeah, I thought I, I, it's, it's, it's such a weird thing. Cause like I've, I've, I've argued with my mum about fats before cause she's like low fat obsessed. <laughs> Um, and 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 I always I like I, I'm always trying to like even with my like limited knowledge I'm being like that's I've tried to be like that's not how it works and she's like oh well I'm a nurse you know I've been, been taught this stuff for four years and I was like well maybe but <laughs> so how did maybe the best place to start is broadly how did we end up in a position where the 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 health advice or our understanding of how food is affecting our bodies and our health. How did that become so divorced from the reality over the past 40 years? Right. Well, it, it started really in the 60s and 70s, the obsession with cholesterol. And everyone wanted to know after Ike, the president, had a heart attack and all that stuff. And everyone was interested in why are there so many heart attacks? And there were none, excuse me, at the turn of the century, really, at all. Now, one of the big reasons was smoking had exploded, but they didn't realize that at the time. And so they went looking and they found that cholesterol, blood cholesterol, loosely correlated, correlation, not causation, but it kind of correlated. The higher cholesterol seemed to link to a higher rate of heart disease. So they took that uh, misleading lead uh, and they ran with it. And then a guy called Ansel Keys was extremely political, extremely aggressive. He was actually a fish, a fish physiologist but he's a very clever guy. The K rations in the army uh, came from Ansel Keys. Um, so he did some stuff that was kind of useful, but he became obsessed with cholesterol. He also saw the political opportunity and the financial opportunity in heart disease, the biggest killer and all the interest in it. So he got into it and he ran straight with cholesterol. And he did a couple of studies. I won't go into details, the six countries and seven countries, and they were utter junk. Uh, just correlational associational studies, total junk, but he biased them. So what he did was out of 22 countries where the data was available, they had the cholesterol and they had the rate of heart disease. 
Ansel went in and he picked the six countries and then the seven countries that he knew the cholesterol correlated to heart disease uh, best. So he could get this straight line relationship, higher cholesterol, higher heart disease. And it was nonsense because when you took all the 22 countries, it was a shotgun plot. There was no correlation. And we know now for the last 10 or 20 years, it was junk. The correlation barely exists. So that's kind of where it came from. He was very political, as I say, very influential. He got consensus. He joined the American Heart Association. He became very powerful. He got in Time magazine in the 60s. And basically, this nonsense idea took hold. And to make a long story short, then, there was a consensus panel with the National Institutes of Health in around 1981. And the whole industry and business realized there were a lot of scientists saying this is junk science. So it became a bit embarrassing. So they came together and they created a consensus that cholesterol is the main driver of heart disease. And after that, the rest is history. So whenever you see a consensus has to be forced, people have to be um, or dissonant people have to be shut down or censored or ridiculed. Uh, you know, it's a scam. You know it's group thinking, you know it's a scam. So cholesterol, fat is bad for you. All the COVID stuff, a lot of the climate stuff. Whenever there's a forced consensus done, you know there's something rotten at the core. Yeah. And, uh, you know, long story short, it just became the mantra. Uh, they forced the consensus. Anyone who went against it then lost their funding, got in trouble, and people gave up. And then the industry, the statin industry came in in the 80s and 90s, and they were making the biggest selling drugs of all time on the back of the cholesterol nonsense. And after that, the fate was sealed. There was It was too big to fail. And it still to this day is too big to fail. I mean, literally too big to fail. They just cannot allow that one to go down, unfortunately. So... And we'll get to that too big to fail actually in a minute because I'm really interested in that. But like, is there is there any causal link that that, that has been drawn between cholesterol and, and, and heart disease? Your cholesterol, uh, actually the lipoproteins, low density lipoprotein, sounds like a big word. That's LDL. That's your bad cholesterol. And it's actually billions and trillions of lipoproteins that carry cholesterol, and then they also carry fats, triglycerides for energy around your body. So think of billions of submarines made by your liver that are sent out to bring the cholesterol around your body because it's a crucial molecule for life. And it also brings around fats. Uh, LDL, low-density lipoprotein, and HDL, high-density lipoprotein. That's the good cholesterol, the HDL good cholesterol. But it's not cholesterol molecules. They're lipoproteins, and they're like submarines because your blood is aqueous, it's water-based, and the fats your body must ship around, and cholesterol is a fatty molecule. Uh, they won't go through your blood because it's water-based. You know, it'll be like oil and water. So your body makes these exotic uh, macromolecules to store the cholesterol and fat and deliver the fat for energy and deliver the cholesterol for all its crucial functions. Beautiful system. If you damage those particles, and you can do it by eating sugar or getting overweight or diabetic, uh, getting inflamed, you damage the cholesterol particles, and then they become a problem. But you'll note what I said. 
when you damage the particles, they become a problem. They become smaller, denser, they get oxidized, they're a problem. But it's what damages them that's the root cause that you need to address, not the particles themselves. They're natural. Your liver makes 80% of your cholesterol. Even if you eat less, wow. your liver will make more. Your body, really? all bodies, are making mountains of cholesterol all the time. <laughs> so how could it be bad? It's ridiculous. But if you damage the particles, then you create a problem. But it's not the particles problem. It's the fact that you damage them. Okay. So then before we go to the, the how you damage them, like what what exactly is, is, is cholesterol doing in the body? Like what are its, its main functions for people who don't know? And for myself, uh, cholesterol is arguably or almost certainly the most important molecule for life, for mammalian life. And plants have stanol, uh, plant cholesterol. It's the most important molecule for them. No cholesterol, no life. So people need to get that in their heads. No cholesterol, no life. There is no more important molecule for human life and health than cholesterol. So your brain has around 4% of your body weight is in your brain, but it has 20% of your body's cholesterol. Your brain is stuffed with cholesterol. Cholesterol makes all the cell membranes for your 37 trillion or 37,000 billion cells that make up a human. Every single one of those has crucial cholesterol creating the membrane around the cell, without which you're gone. Cholesterol is central to life. It makes your hormones. It's used as a precursor for vitamin D, uh, which people will be aware is really important. I mean, it could go on and on, synapses and all kinds of... It, it's just crucial and central to mammals' lives. Uh, that's it. <laughs> that's just... It's only crucial to life. <laughs> yeah. Crucial. <laughs> yeah. So... So then what what is it that can damage the cholesterol molecules themselves that, that then cause them to become like denser and oxidized and, and become the problems you were uh, you were talking about? Right. Well, if you're going to pick the biggest thing, like uh, I'm an engineer, so I use the Pareto principle. What's the eight is 20 percent of things that cause 80 percent of the problem, that idea. Mm. What's the big hitters, the elephants in the room? So I always say the devil's triad uh, three things that together in the cluster are the worst possible thing you can do to your body. And the devil's triad is sugars, refined grains or refined wheats, which is in all our food, obviously, and all our breads, and vegetable oils, mm. which are seed oils made in chemical factories, basically. They're oils that are extracted from seeds with hexane and solvents and high temperature. They should never go in any human body, but we're told they're heart healthy. So sugar, refined grains, and vegetable oils. And the problem is that most of ultra-processed foods and most of the supermarket is stuffed with that devil's triad. The British Medical Journal a few years ago came out, over 60% of all calories consumed in the UK came from ultra-processed food, which is the what? devil's triad. 60%? So, yeah. So we're not just eating a certain amount of what's essentially poisonous to us, the devil's triad, you could argue that the majority of our calories in our population are now being eaten. So imagine you had a substance that you got to be careful with because it causes inflammation in the body and it's a problem. And imagine that you said, well, I'm going to make you eat half of your calories 
is going to be that stuff. Whatever about a spoonful, you know, whatever about like 10%, you might walk it off. No, half of what people are putting in their mouths now is essentially a form of toxin. So there's no surprises why we have an explosion, a tsunami of chronic disease. And the mechanism, sugar refined grains, vegetable oils drive insulin resistance, which is high blood glucose and high blood insulin from your pancreas. It is type 2 diabetes. But most people who have type 2 diabetes are not diagnosed. For every type 2 diabetic diagnosed, there's another four or five people walking around who are type 2 diabetic, not diagnosed. So it's an enormous problem. Type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, they call it pre-diabetes sometimes. Uh, surveys in America six years ago, 64% of Americans over 45 are now essentially type 2 diabetic. That's two-thirds of Americans over 45-year-olds are effectively type 2 diabetic, even if they don't have the diagnosis. And if you use, if you measure their blood insulin, like myself and Dr. Gerber and my network always do, it's probably more like 75% of, of Americans over 45 now have the insulin resistance diabetic problem. And that will make an utter mess of your cholesterol particles. This seems like, like a monstrous fucking problem. Like, like, what is the cost to 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 like the country? Like, like, even just in healthcare of this of this like misconception that we have. That's it. It it's enormous. It's it's beyond reckoning because then you've got all the semi-useless drugs that are used to treat hypertension and treat cholesterol. Um, so you got to add all that cost of all those drugs and the insulin for all the diabetics. I mean, and all the surgeries. And just a quick thing, insulin resistance is the primary driver of heart attacks and heart disease, the biggest killer in the world. Insulin resistance that I described is the primary driver of that bar none. It's the elephant. If you fixed insulin resistance, you wouldn't have to worry too much about the other things that drive heart disease. So there's all of heart disease. Most of the major cancers are massively insulin dependent. So endometrial, breast cancer, colon cancer, powerfully linked to insulin resistance for many mechanisms that we understand. And then Alzheimer's, this big, huge problem with Alzheimer's. Uh, that's being called now type 3 diabetes because it's type 2 diabetes that manifests in the uh, neurological space rather than in the body or the periphery. So you got all the Alzheimer's as well. So Alzheimer's, most cancers and heart disease and heart attacks and strokes, which same thing, you've got most of the disease in the world. It all goes straight back mostly to insulin resistance. Wow. It's huge. And that and that is being driven. And you, yeah, sorry, what were you gonna say? By oh, by ultra processed foods mainly, but I mean lack of exercise, smoking, uh, poor sleep drives up your insulin. That's a problem. Chronic stress drives up your cortisol and your insulin and blood sugars. That's a problem. So there's lots of things that drive it. Mm -hmm. uh, quite a long list. But in engineering world, we always focused on the biggest. So the biggest is the devil's triad. Mm -hmm. If you ate just meat, fish and eggs and non-starchy, non-sugary vegetables, 
like not so much potatoes or rice, but you ate broccoli and cauliflower, meat and two veg. If that's all you ate, the other things you probably wouldn't have to worry too much about. It's literally as simple as that. It's shocking. Uh, the carnivores now only eat meat. So I know a lot of carnivores, many are doctors and surgeons and are pretty much on a meat only diet. And they're doing it because it's the minimum inflammation diet. And some of them have some autoimmune issues and stuff. But diets like that, meat and two veg or just meat even, uh, you almost can't maintain insulin resistance problem. And a type 2 diabetic, we have many published studies, switch to a low-carb, healthy diet like that, and 60% generally will be in remission after a month, i.e. they will technically not be type 2 diabetic. Their blood sugar will drop so fast in their insulin and their heart disease risk another risk for other diseases will collapse within a few weeks of switching to real food. This is the biggest secret in the world. <laughs> yeah. It seems like, and I, I, I remember when I was like starting to like adhere to some of, some of these ideas, like I was like, you know, changing my diet a little bit. I was, you know, starting to train like go to the gym for the first time and i was like that's when i started looking at my diet probably went right okay like if i'm put if i'm going to the gym i need to be eating i, I don't want to be wasting my time i want to have like the most effective diet for you know trying to get in shape and then so i'd be eating a lot of meat eggs you know um dairy eggs. like loads and loads like you know be lathering cheese on stuff you know like stuff like um to to you know pump up the the fat and protein content of the things i'm eating and i remember my mom like whenever I went home at one point and I was, I was like making food and she was like, Oh, we got to get your cholesterol looked at. <laughs> like it's, it's so, it's so, it's so deeply ingrained in people. Um, yeah. But the, the Alzheimer's thing is super interesting to me. Um, is that, is that like a how how mainstream is that definition of it as type three diabetes that you, that, that you described there? Like how, how, how widely sort of mm. recognized is that? A professor in the field uh, actually coined that phrase based on the evidence and quite a few specialists in the field will be fully cognizant and aware that it's essentially diabetes in the brain uh, capsule. So, but a lot of people working with Alzheimer's and, uh, will, will have no idea, of course, because these, these papers are published in the scientific literature, but there's millions of papers published and the education of doctors doesn't really come from the scientific literature. They don't research themselves and, and stay up to speed. Well, a lot of guys who are doctors and professors in my network will, of course, be constantly reading uh, scientific papers. But most doctors are busy and their education largely comes from where? Well, it largely comes from pharma. Because pharma fund and support the CPD, uh, the continuing kind of education credits and courses. So the doctors, a lot of their education that they have after medical school indirectly kind of makes its way to them from pharma. And pharma know damn well what I'm saying. They're, they're not stupid. They, they know what causes disease and they profit off it. And in medical school, all my doctor friends from America to Israel to you know, all across Europe, always the same joke. They had four to six hours of nutrition training in medical school. 
And like you could even skip it if you wanted to and get away with it. It's nothing. And I don't know what nurses do. And if nurses do do training, the nutrition industry and food industry has basically co-opted now nutrition education. So I've been reading a while back nutrition like manuals and it's just farcical. They don't know. They just don't understand about insulin resistance and they will not say low carb diets because that's perceived as that's not a good thing. You know? Why? Why? Why is that? Why? That. You know, like, oh. yeah. Why? Why is it that, that this is pushed? Like these these ideas. Like I, I guess it's difficult for me to get my head around some things when, when the evidence is quite clear against it, and I'm looking at it and going, so I'm not in the field. Maybe there's something I'm missing. But like, is there a reason that these myths have persisted and that that nutrition is not a part of, uh, yeah, the training that that, that medical professionals get? Mm. It's it's just capitalism. It's just money. So I said since the 50s and 60s, a massive industry grew up, an ultra-processed food industry, one of the biggest industries in the world, are invested up to the neck in maintaining these ideas because it allows them to shift vast quantities of ultra-cheap components, vegetable oils and refined grains. And uh, pharmaceutical industry, biggest, richest industry in the world, practically has a whole street of offices in Washington to lobby uh, senators. Uh, and they know this too. And they're making all the money on the antihypertensives, the lowering cholesterol drugs, uh, and the heart disease drugs, and the Alzheimer's drugs. It, it's vast quantities of money beyond any normal person's uh, ability to appreciate are involved in maintaining the fat and cholesterol nonsense. And, you know, we saw in COVID as well, $4 trillion went from the middle and lower classes to the richest people on the planet. $4,000 billion just in the first year of COVID. The number of billionaires in the world doubled in the first year of COVID. All you have to do is follow the money. And where the money goes, that's where that's where you see the corruption. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the way it is. It's There's no conspiracy theory. It's mutual self-interest. It's a confluence of interests that's ultra powerful and involves vast corporations around the world. And it, their quarterly revenues on Wall Street, they're going to meet the street every quarter. And it utterly depends on this nonsense. Therefore, they have spent decades and a lot of money making sure they inveigle their way into medical training, medical education, medical conferences, and of course, nutrition, the food industry has is basically working. They don't even deny it in the nutrition industry. The big nutrition conferences are funded by Danone and you know, all these processed food companies. It's like there's no point to be there's no point to even declaring the conflict of interest. Down the bottom it says, Oh, Professor Haley is working, has taken grants from Pfizer, has taken grants from Danone, Nestle. They actually disclose down the bottom, but no one even reads it. It's yeah. like, yeah, come on. Yeah, and this this massive upward wealth transfer as well is also like bad in in a sense that like as people become poorer, they tend to like in a sense like the the spare cash that might be spent on better quality of food 
especially like I was thinking when you were talking about like, you know, consultants, doctors, like they're all carnivores. Like it must be nice to afford, be able to afford meat that much. Like <laughs> that's like, you know, obviously there's, there's other things you can put in, you know, like eggs depends on the cuts you're buying and stuff. But, but, but unfortunately like the ultra processed stuff as a, through the nature of being crap is cheap and, yes. and, uh, and uh, people end up eating it. Like I, I'm, definitely like if you know my food would be different if i had unlimited money to spend on it so but but even then like i try to think about it but it's it's not something people consider that much like the the, the quality of the stuff that they're putting in their body like wh why do you think that is because like because it it feels like a pretty big thing it's like isn't it once every seven years your cells are completely new through all the like and they're basically made up of all the stuff you've been putting in yourself for seven years surely you want that to be good things like where do you think that 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 gap between health and diet has has gone well you see people people eat to survive but but they also eat for pleasure and people don't think about having to get calories to survive because we live in an age where you know even if you don't have a job and you don't have money you know you'll you get the dole you'll be able to get food so people don't think about the survival anymore so what's left then is pleasure because people just don't think about nutrition except for what they're told by the media and the people have been told for 50 years now meat's bad fats are bad eggs are probably dangerous because of the cholesterol and they're told healthy whole grains, healthy whole grains, fruit juice. Orange juice has more sugar per liter than Coca-Cola. It's just shocking. It's what? liver poison. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, an orange is fine, though ideally an orange 100 years ago would be smaller and, and more bitter and much lower in sugar. But even the modern oranges that have been bred for a century to get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter because it sells more, right? It's capitalism. They're super sweet now and they're stuffed with sugar, which is not ideal at all. And if you're diabetic, it's a disaster. But anyway, but if you juice that and turn it into liquid, now you've just made it into liquid sugar. You know, there's some nutrients in there. There's vitamin C. You can get that somewhere else. So, yeah, drinking a lot of orange juice is the same as drinking a lot of Coca-Cola. You know, it'll blow your liver up. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is now around 20 times bigger than alcoholic fatty liver disease. You know, like uh, the liver problems alcoholics get. There's 20 times more people with fatty livers because sugar acts in the liver, same as alcohol. Same process, same buildup of fat and then cirrhosis. So... Not only is there an epidemic of fatty liver disease in America, there's an epidemic of fatty liver disease in the young in America. Because the amount of sugar they're taking and vegetable oil is also toxic for the liver. There's fatty liver diseases everywhere. And fatty liver disease kind of is type 2 diabetes. I mean, they're all joined at the hip. So, yeah, juice. If you liquefy juice or smoothies, you're making the glucose sugar so available to the body that it gets absorbed right at the top of your small intestine and it sends your insulin through the roof. You keep doing that for years and eventually your pancreas won't be able to keep up with the demand and then you'll be diagnosed a type 2 diabetic. We know the mechanisms. We know how it happens. You do a Coca-Cola, you can do it with orange, loads of orange juice if you want. Your choice. Wow. So what, like how much... Now, how if you're healthy... 
you know, if you're healthy and, you know, you're living well, sleeping well, you don't have too much stress, you're not smoking, uh, you're not too old, because as we get old, insulin resistance gets harder and harder to avoid. But if you're healthy and fit and young, you might be able to handle a lot of whole grains and, and quite a lot of orange juice or, you know, and even pizzas and your genetics. Some people are resistant to developing the problem genetically. They're lucky. So, but anyone who has any hint of high blood pressure, which is nearly all insulin resistance, that's what causes the high blood pressure. Half our population has high blood pressure. That's insulin resistance. Causes salt retention in the kidney, drives up the pressure in the blood. That's what it is. So if you have any hint of blood pressure or obesity or any of the risk factors that come up in the heart risk tables, um, you got to be extremely careful to minimize your sugar and whole grains and processed food. And if you only eat meat, fish, and eggs pretty much, you can forget about your risk, mostly. Mm. Well, that's good. That's well, I mean, there's, at least there's a positive way out of this. Oh, no, meat, yeah, fish, and easy. eggs. No, no. The things I like. Well, well the beauty is that, uh, this is the funny thing, Josh, that it's not like you have to deny yourself in a way. Yes, you're denying yourself the laboratory-concocted ultra-processed foods that are made with bliss points and sugar-fat ratios to be addictive. So I, I, I have no doubt the processed foods are addictive and they're addictive by design. So it's not trivially easy not to eat them. We all want to eat chocolate bars. We all want to eat sugar puffs and all this kind of pizzas. But once you understand this, you realize I love rare ribeyes. I love duck breasts. You know, I actually like you know, salmon cutlets, when they're done, they put a little bit of effort into cooking and use the chives or the dill and use the sea salt and maybe mm. a bit of pepper. Yeah, lemon juice. You actually can turn to delicious foods. I mean, omelets with chopped green pepper and some onion. I love onion. You know, a bunch of stuff, quick to make. Omelets are gorgeous. I mean, let's be honest. These superfoods, meat, fish, and eggs, are delicious. We've just kind of forgotten it. But once you make the switch... Mentally, I'm only going to eat real food. And you put a bit of effort into cooking, get back into making the food delicious again. Then um, then it's not too hard to stay off the junk. But if you kind of half-ass say, I'm going to eat a bit more real food, I'm going to make an effort to eat a bit more of eggs. It doesn't work. Because you kind of eat a bit more of eggs and then you just drift back in again. Mm. So, Yeah, I mean, I like the way you've put it there. Eat real food. Like, that's... that. That seems like it should be a non sequitur, really, shouldn't it? Um, for most people. <laughs> yeah, the problem is the nutrition uh, people think that whole grain bread and bread is real food. Uh, that's just a farce. It's one of the worst foods on the planet. Myself and Dr. Gerber in the book, we said bread, the diet destroyer. Yeah, I can't even eat bread. If I eat any bread at all, I'm just going to eat a load of it, even with what I know. I mean, that stuff is shockingly addictive with butter on it. And there's a reason, because the grains were mashed up and made into hyperglucose. And then they're mixed in with some vegetable oils and fats. And then you put some butter on them. You got the kind of nasty sugar fat mixture. But it's just addictive. Because in evolution, if we ever came across something like honey or sweet or the fruits in the autumn before the long winter when we might starve to death, we are driven 
to build some fat for the winter. So, and sweet foods are never, um, are never bad in terms of poisoning you. That's another thing. In evolution, meat could have bugs on it. You know, you could eat this plant or that plant. But things that are sweet are almost all not toxic in the short term. So there's all these evolutionary reasons that we will be drawn to take sugary foods and sugary fruits because we need to survive. And the problem for millions of years was always not enough food and starving to death. Now it's flipped. There's no shortage of food and winter never comes because we ship this sugary junk from all over the world out of season all the time. You can eat for winter every day of your life. And you get fat like a bear, <laughs> hibernating. <laughs> oh, yeah. I wonder what the Starks <laughs> would do in this world. Winter never comes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good phrase, though. There's a guy down in, I think, Waterford, Keen. Um, we got a second name. I interviewed him in one of my first podcasts. But, uh, yeah, don't eat for winter is his tagline. Hmm. Don't eat for winter. That's it. Yeah, he understands this stuff, obviously. Mm. yeah that's a fantastic piece of advice i'm definitely gonna have well I'm, I'm, i have to go to the shop after we finish so i'm, I'm definitely gonna be going and buying real food um <laughs> so, that's it meat meat fish but but pick i mean in ireland we're lucky josh because the quality of most of the meat is grass-fed essentially in ireland it's just the nature we have so many fields full of grass we're a fantastic country to make meat and most of it is fine and if you buy I think two pounds or 900 grams, nearly a kilogram. Think of the nutrient density in a kilogram of Irish grass-fed beef, mince, or ground beef. Mm. For the lean, healthy stuff, which is not the good stuff because they've taken the fat out, down to 8% fat, that's bad news. You don't want all the protein and no fat. And the flavors in the fat as well. But for that stuff, I think it's only a tenner. Uh, for nearly a kilo. And then for the higher fat, natural best meat, the same meat, but they haven't taken the fat out, that's down to four or five euro for nearly a kilo. That's for nothing. Mm. You could get enough calories just, just buying meat in Ireland for a few euro a day. It's that cheap. And, and organ meats are superfoods beyond belief. And so you get those for next to nothing, yeah. which are probably given to you for nothing because people don't eat them anymore. Those are crazy. What um, be, what, eggs what's, in the, what's the organ meat that I should try if I'm going to go down to the butcher and be like, I've never tried well, any organ meat. What should I go for? Yeah, and humans, for all, all, of, all, all of our humanity, all of our evolution, organ meats were prized, prized for, for delic delectable and also for their nutrient density. And now you're right, last 50, 60 years, everyone stopped, stopped buying their crap in the supermarket. So I'd say liver is tricky to cook and make appetizing. And it kind of has to be rare to be nice. And some people are not comfortable with that because they've never eaten it. Um, one way out is to eat pate. So pate has all the goodness of liver, but it's not like eating liver. So pate, find a pate you like and eat a lot. Or the, uh, the French terrine, hard mm. to get in Ireland. Absolutely delicious. I like kidneys. Um, but they need to be cooked right in cream uh, okay. because otherwise, if you just kind of fry them, they're just like rubbery, piss-smelling little lumps. 
<laughs> I remember that. And they do faintly smell of piss, in fairness. Oh, I've got I've got a massive cookbook. <laughs> I've got got Tim Ferriss's um, The 4-Hour Chef somewhere. Oh. He's, bound to ha- he, he's bound to have something in there about organ meats. Yeah, our French-based uh, cooking books. Like, if you... If you open the, the French massive book, I forget the name of it, but it's like the Bible of gastronomy in France, some famous book. Mm. I remember uh, a professor in New York I was interviewing was telling me about this. He was saying all the idiots say, oh, low carb is not good and oh, blah, blah, blah. And French have the lowest heart disease in Europe mm. and they can never answer why. They started BSing about wine and all this crap. Um, but they have the lowest heart disease and they have the highest fat in their in their cooking. <laughs> and in Perigord in France, down near Lyon, they have the ultra highest fat in their diet, even compared to France. And they have even lower heart disease than France. No way. I mean, yeah. And if you open the classic French book, every, near most pages you open, you, it'll be a low-carb recipe. It won't be called low-carb. Mm. But it'll be all duck and fat. It'll be practically keto. Yeah, they got a bit of bread, but they eat very sparingly, the French. And women know once they go above the age of 20, they got to be really careful with bread or they get fat. French women have known that for generations. So they do have the bread, but mostly like their duck cassoulet and, you know, their fatty cuts of meat and cheeses and olives are high fat. You know, the French. They know how to do uh, it. They're good guys, Mm. but they're getting fat now as well. Not as quick as like UK or Ireland, but they're going down the toilet as well. Sure. I was in France there a few years ago and all the vending machines and all the pastry shops now full of cakes and croissants and jam croissants. They're they're all getting fat as well. It's all the food. It's not the lack of exercise. It's not because we stopped doing exercise. That's bullshit. Because we're eating poison. Makes the, the the worst bit for me is the bread. That's the thing that I I, I struggle to not have. I love a well, big tiger loaf from Lidl. You know, the big thick cut one. Like <laughs> that's obesity in a, in a in a package. That's all it is. Oh, uh, like we said, uh, myself and Gerber, bread, the diet destroyer. I think we titled this a uh, small chapter uh, because bread needs to be taken out and dealt with uh, and explained to people. It is toxic. And it's obesogenic and it's a disaster, but it's delicious. So my rule is I only eat bread when I'm in a restaurant, which is rare enough. But when I'm in a restaurant and I have some bread at the start, that's the only time I'll eat it. Because unless I have that rule, I've eaten it all the time. Yeah. And you can make, I think if you Google oopsie bread, I know it sounds silly. It's American. There's some really simple, easy ways to make non bad breads or they're like breads if you want to make a burger and you want something like bread you can fry these patties i forget what they're made out of um you can use almond flour and some other things and mix with egg but you can make bread like stuff that's fine and and that's your workaround i'd say right yeah yeah, i'm gonna have a look at this these oopsie rolls that sounds interesting what (laughs) is it Three large eggs, three ounces of cream cheese, one dash of salt, one cream cream of tartar. Intriguing. Yeah, they're simple enough. I believe they're real. My wife was making them a while back. I think she fell out of the habit, but you throw them in the pan or you can even put them in the microwave. I can't remember. We put them in the book, though. Mm. And we credited the author. 
Hmm. Oh, we're running up on the hour here, I see. Yes. Oh, it's getting tight. Yeah, yeah, we are. I was just looking at the time there. So so the last thing uh, I wanted to ask about was just, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on this new free speech law that's that's coming through because um, I, I only really heard about this like about a week ago and I interviewed some people from uh, Free Speech Ireland about it last week and we chatted through it. But yeah, I wanted to get, get your thoughts. Mm. Uh, it's an abomination. And it's it's still almost I cannot believe it even now. I have to pinch myself that that people were evil enough to actually sit down and write that. And that sounds like hyperbole or an exaggeration. I am not exaggerating. I was horrified when I read the legislation. I, I just I it's stunning. It actually makes thought crime a crime. You know, that's 1984, right? You can be followed or charged to look at your private discs and, you know, diary even. And if anything that they call hate speech, which can be ending, like, I mean, in a couple of years, it can be saying something you don't agree with the government. You, you know where these things go. They call it hate speech. Well, if you've got anything privately, yourself, your computer, you never gave it to anyone. You wrote it down in your bedroom. Technically, the law says you can be charged for having that. It's thought crime. For actually having anything, even if you didn't give it. If they feel that you would have shared it. And that it likely would have caused a hate offense to someone. It's insane. I mean, it's just... It, I hopefully you can see it is absolutely insane. And there's a bunch more stuff in it that's equally horrifying. I mean, I'm trying to remember now, like there's other details. If you, they've written down, if you say you've lost the encryption key and you can't access your computer, if you say that to the guards, they say that's a crime. Specifically, what? it's a crime. Yes. What? If you say you can't access it, or you don't give them full access through whatever means, they are saying that's a crime. So it's written in there, and I think there's a lot of good material on it because I know we're running out of time, but I did a video on my YouTube, and you know what I'll do? I'll send you the link, and if you put it below this podcast, I did a 10-minute video, really made sure it was short, and I went through the key elements of it, and it's just so useful, 10-minute video. And it's in a tweet as well as an embedded video. And I think 10 minutes is all you need. And it also tells you how to email all the senators together in one go and, and the TDs. But the latest campaign, Josh, is Paddy, the councillor, who's in mixed martial arts uh, from Tala, nice guy. He's a councillor for a few years, big beard, kind of a reddish beard. He's gone out with a call to action because we reckon the senators are so corrupt and useless, they'll probably rubber stamp this. It's yeah. already gone through the doil. Yeah, yeah, passed. yeah. 110 and to 14. And then it's down to that. Disgustingly. 110 to it, 14. It, it's just, it's corruption as a scale that's breathtaking. It's coming down from the top, just like COVID and masks and lockdowns all came from the top, the UN, the EU, yada, yada, yada. This has been pushed by the EU and it's been pushed by the World Economic Forum for years. And here it is on our shores. So I guess 
the last hope is the little gnome in the in the Auris or whatever president's house. That's the last chance. If he feels compelled from all the letters he gets that he has to, which he has to, surely, refer to the Supreme Court, as is the president's right. Any question mark around legislation that may be a breach, <laughs> and this one is insane, uh, has to go to the Supreme Court to get looked at and say, okay, hold on, what are this bunch of idiot politicians or nasty people on behalf of big organizations? What are they trying to ram through now? Is it sinister or is it good? Mm. Supreme Court would sort this out. Yeah. Ha has to. I mean, Supreme Court would just throw this in the bin. It's shocking. It's sinister. It's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. I fucking, oh, I fucking hope they throw it in the bin. So, well, well, hopefully we don't even get to that. It would like, be nice to, to, to see the Senate do something about it, but we'll we'll see how it goes. Um, well, let's hope. But yeah. yeah, I'll put that 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 link in the description below for people who are listening. So, Ivor, um, yeah, I know you have to get back to, to you know, rebuilding your cottage. Um, so I will let you go. Uh, link for your book, uh, your website, and to that video will be in the description below for, uh, for people. Uh, thanks very much, man. Great stuff, Josh. Cheers. Next time. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.